This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel for all your Disney-related travel needs. Just send them an email at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and they'll get you on your way to the best Disney vacation ever. Why not come out here for Disneyland's 60th anniversary celebration? I mean, you book with them, I'll buy you a drink. How about that? I'm serious. Come out. We'll go to Trader Sam's. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And it is such a, a lovely musical day here. Like music plays all the place all yes, over in California? Exactly. Like really? everyone's got their own theme song. Wow. Just wandering around. Just It's gorgeous. So like when your boss comes in, does it play the Imperial March from Darth Vader? Pretty much, which is funny because she's significantly shorter than I am. So ah, it's kind of like Dark Helmet. Yeah, I was going to say from Spaceballs. Yeah, that makes so much more sense. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much and more she's sense. She's got a cool accent too, so it's a little more menacing. And sometimes I don't understand what she's saying, but... <laughs> you just have to go, yes, Yeah, I nod my head. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I'll do that. Totally on the dark side. So wait, is that Mrs. Dodge? Yep, Mrs. Dodge. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Well, Where are we going with this? N- nowhere. We we should probably go on because we've got a, a a two-parter for the Disney history, right? We do. Part one this week. Part two next week. That's how two-parters work. Well, unless it's like the end of the world or something. That's true. Hopefully we don't leave you in suspense. But if we don't come back, it was probably a meteorite. And that's yes. canon. It's time for Disney History. When Walt Disney decided to leap from short animated cartoons to feature-length ones, you know, the entire entertainment world kind of balked at the idea. In fact, several dubbed it as Walt's folly and constantly told him that it would never work. Uh, But when Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was released, it went beyond the audience's expectations and cemented Walt as one of the greatest movie moguls of our time. You know, despite his success with Snow White, several critics still dismissed feature-length animation as just for kids, and and not a true art form. Walt wanted to do something that would blow them away and dissuade them from continuing to thumb their noses at something that Walt loved dearly, and that something would be Fantasia, combining animation and classical music in a way never done before. Now, the film itself actually did not start off as a feature animation as we know it today. In fact, it started much, much smaller as just the short, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And the short was to be the first time the storytelling of the Mickey Mouse series would be combined with the artistic music from the Silly Symphony series. And Walt kind of thought that joining the two together would be combining the best of each field that he kind of had control over and result in this huge success. So the short originally had a recording from Arturo Toscanini, an Italian conductor. But soon after, Walt met Leopold Stokowski. Leopold wanted to spread awareness of classical music, much like Disney wanted to do with his animated films. Walt found him to be a kindred spirit of sorts, and the two decided to work together. Arturo was let go, and Leopold was brought on. I always hate when I let go of my churro. It's such a tragedy. Well, it's either that or somebody just sort of swipes it from you because you're too busy periscoping at Disneyland. That's a fair point. (laughs) 
So anyway, two months later, Leopold actually arrived at the uh, to record the composition for the short film, and his 100-piece orchestra worked through the night, and by the morning, they were finished. So he left, and he just thought that his part in the project was over. But he was very, very, very wrong. Because Walt and Roy, they were kind of crunching the numbers, and they realized they had spent four times the cost of a normal Silly Symphonies on just the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And they were never going to make their money back on it, unless they turned it into a feature. Or a theme park. Or a theme park. Mm. But that came later. Yeah, exactly. So Fantasia was born from there. It was initially known as the concert feature, and it kept growing and growing. Walton Leopold recruited radio personality and music critic Deems Taylor, no relation, to help with the project. Under Leopold and Deems' guidance, Walt and the studio immersed themselves in classical music. Walt allowed his artists to see what really spoke to them, whatever they got inspiration from, and that's how the various selections were chosen for the film. So the seven pieces that would make up the concert feature were Takata and Fugue, which celebrate, you know, abstract animation, uh, the Nutcracker Suite, which turned into a reflection on the changing seasons, uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where Mickey grapples with ultimate power in the form of his master's hat. In the Rite of Spring, following the creation of the Earth through the extinction of the dinosaurs, the Pastoral Symphony, a campy, comedic-look Greek mythology, the Dance of the Hours, which was parodying the gracefulness of a ballet, and Night on Bald Mountain, Ave Maria, a look at the depths of evil and the redemption of faith. So Walt really wanted the film to be viewed as if the audience were actually viewing an actual concert. So when the film begins, orchestra members can actually be seen, uh, you know, filing into view and taking their place in the orchestra. And they even remain on screen during the opening moments of the film before shifting completely into the animation. And this is his way of really showcasing that music was to take center stage for the film. Just like the penguins. Exactly. Just like the penguins. So, and since music would be center stage, that meant it needed to sound the best it could be. They went back to Leopold Sikowski's recording of The Sorcerer's Apprentice and realized that Disney's current setup for sound just wouldn't cut it. Leopold had done his best with what he had, but Walt knew if he really wanted to make this work, he needed to update what they had. Just as the multiplane camera achieved new heights and depths in animation, Walt decided he needed something similar now for the sound if he wanted Fantasia to fulfill its full oral potential. So Bill Garrity from the studio's sound department, he was put in charge of the new system, and he and his team of engineers developed a two-tiered system known as Fantasound, no relation to the soda. <laughs> It's the sound the Fanta makes when you woke. Never mind. Okay, so <laughs> Fanta Sound used multiple recording devices to capture every single part of the orchestra. The system stored the recordings separately on their own tracks, and then the recordings could be played back on over 60 speakers arranged from the front of the theater to the back. Some speakers were even placed behind the screen to fully bombard audience members with the music from all angles. Of course, this amazing new sound system was not cheap at all. You know, nope. in fact, it went through so many incarnations and prototypes that by the end, the sound budget made up about one-fifth of Fantasia's $2.28 million budget. Leopold also made some changes as well. He actually went back and recorded the music with the Philadelphia Orchestra at the Philadelphia Academy of Music. And it was here, within America's Best Acoustic Hall and Arm with Fantasound, that he spent seven weeks recording all the music for the film. Yeah, Fantasound was not the only new marvel that Walt wanted to introduce to audience for Fantasia. 
for a time period, there was also to be a 3D sequence in Takata and Fugue, as well as floral aromas during the Nutcracker Suite. Unfortunately, due to the growing budget of the feature, these were eventually cut out, and Fantasound was the only one that survived. The Loretta's spring piece of the film was also a bit troublesome for the animators. So while the story itself was easy to grasp, they did have one big problem. They had no idea how prehistoric dinosaurs were supposed to act or move. A problem they could have avoided if they had a swan boat time machine. But True. Exactly. We just need that. If they, if they, did, they didn't have one, so it was still relatively new ground for them and researchers at the time, and they didn't have a Jurassic Park to go to either, so the no. studio reached out to the top research institutions for help. <laughs> like Chris Pratt. Yes. Chris Pratt, Basically. how do you train raptors? <laughs> or the Dino Institute. <laughs> that would have worked. Dr. Grant Seeker. Okay, so apparently it worked out well because their portrayals of the dinosaurs were so realistic that the New York Academy of Science held private screenings for its members so they could get a better understanding of them. Pretty impressive, right? Um, even though the end of the piece was the dinosaurs' extinction due to global warming and earthquakes, uh, which is no longer the prevailing theory, it is still very impressive. Walt, each, you know, he actually had plans for that part of the film to go beyond the dinosaurs, all the way through the age of the mammals, and up to the very first humans. But not really wanting to create a controversy, he scaled those plans down and decided to not include any depiction of evolution in there. But because the piece was so powerful on its own, it was like so bombarding and re realistic and gritty and showing of the, the brutality of that time, they actually added an intermission right after that in the theaters, so for audience members could go out and they can kind of catch their breath and kind of process everything that just happened there. Did we just see dinosaurs? What? <laughs> anyway, so the Life, film... Life uh, finds a way. <laughs> that was a terrible Jeff Goldblum. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do not do accents very well. We nope. apologize. Or, or Goldblumisms. Okay, so the film then... <laughs> After the intermission, resumed with an improvised jazz section and a bit of slapstick humor, so everyone knew that more fun was just ahead. The second act officially kicked off, though with a pastoral symphony, followed by the dance of the hours. Walt had his animators study professional ballerinas and animals, I guess professional animals, from the Los Angeles Zoo for this <laughs> section. It took you a second. I was so, like, wait, what? <laughs> card-carrying members. Um, many of the gags for this section were actually created by Walt himself during an early storyboard session. The very end of the film uh, ends with a struggle between good and evil, as Night on Bald Mountain is acclaimed for its amazing animation, but it was also cursed with various production problems that arose during the time. Now, Chertabog, who was brought to life by B Bill Titla, uh, is considered one of the pinnacles of animation history, and he's also the ultimate personification of animated evil, so maybe he was to blame for the problems? Who knows? One giant question? Question uh. mark? <laughs> cliffhanger? Yes. So, speaking of cliffhangers, just what were these production problems? And how was the film received by audiences? <laughs> well, you'll have to come back next week in episode 183 to find out. But next week on Communicore Weekly. Fantasia. Um, Fantasian? More. Fantasia. I thought you like Fantasian, like it's the invasion of Fantasia. Fantasia fans? Or something like that. Yeah, sure, why not? Um, okay, so uh, give us some thoughts on the early part of our Fantasia segment. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. 
He's a nerd, he's a geek, cause we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. For this week's Book of the Week, because I get paid a nickel every time I say week, I'm going to jump back to a book that I covered way back in episode number 26. Since we don't have the Swan Boat Time Machine technology working very well, it's only a two-seater right now. Um, can't bring everybody along with me. Unfortunately. So I I'd go ba- Unfortunately, go back and look at a book that I looked at about three and a half years ago. <laughs> so I mentioned we've already done 170-some-odd books. That's so a long time. It is a long time. So this week's book is Walt Disney World, The First Decade. And I started the review off back then saying, are you looking for a fairly inexpensive and photo-filled look at the first 10 years of Walt Disney World? No. I think... Jeff, because he's already heard this, so he's like, no, I don't care. I already own Um, it. (laughs) But this is one of my favorite books. And for anybody who's a Walt Disney World fan, they need to grab a copy of it. And let me tell you why. So Walt Disney World, the first decade, was published in 1982. And it's got 128 pages. And it's sort of like a cross between one of the annual guides they used to put out every year. It's got a little bit of a PR type piece to it. And it's got some corporate history as well. And it really is an incredible look at the first 10 years, which is sort of a misnomer because they do cover the first couple of years of construction as well. So it's more like the first 15 years of the Walt Disney World project. And, you know, like most titles on the subject, from the time period, Disney did a general coverage of the company itself. They gave you a history of Walt Disney and the animation in the Disney studio. They look at Disneyland, give you a couple pages of that, and the early progress on Walt Disney World. And after the introduction, the book takes off on a leisurely but very extensive look at everything during the first 10 years. As you'd expect, the book does focus very heavily on the Magic Kingdom, looks at each land in detail with descriptions and lots of pictures. There are in-ride photos. There are some strange photo ops with different celebrities like Amy Cardi, Carter. Cardi is somebody different. Um, <laughs> she, she related to Agent Carter? Maybe. Ooh, good tie-in. Um, tons of weird celebrities from the 1970s. And there's some strange views of the park that you may not recognize today, which is really kind of neat. You know, you're going to take this book and you'll open it just to look at the pictures whether you've been there, you were there in the 70s, or you just want to see what it was like. Sort of like a virtual trip back there. So the Contemporary and the Polynesian Resorts each get about five pages in their coverage. They're uh, Each, each one. And there are lots of views of the lobbies and the guest recreation areas. And it's one of the few places that actually gives some basic information about the golf resort, the Lake Buena Vista Resort community, the Village Marketplace, and river country as well. But they also cover Fort Wilderness and the Tri-Circle D Ranch. And there's a lot of great details on those. So the uh, photographs, the details available um, about Walt Disney World are really astounding. Really loved it. So what's really going to excite all of the cadets out there is the behind the scenes information that Disney was so keen to publish before Epcot. Especially when they were trying to show off the new technologies that were promised, you know, as a result of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The the state-of-the-art reservation center, the central energy plant, the water reclamation center, and all the environmental planning, like the canals, the ecology, the conversation, uh, converse, conservation. Conversations. Conversation is great, too. Yeah, it's a little one-sided here. Um, but all those different things are given coverage as well. 
So this is really, as I've mentioned a couple times, this is a wonderful read, and it's a must for every Walt Disney World history fan. And you know, if you were able to visit Walt Disney World before 85, 1985, because there might be people listening to this in like 2086. I'm hopeful. Maybe. Right? I'm hopeful. Maybe. So if you visited before 1985, many of the descriptions in the pictures will be a walk down memory lane. And if you weren't lucky enough, or like Jeff, born yet, to visit Walt Disney World in the 70s, then this book will provide many of the details of the lost attractions, the shops, and the aspects of Walt Disney World that are gone or have changed. Uh, it's a look back at a simpler and more relaxed Walt Disney World. It's, you know, and from the standpoint of historical documentation, even though it is a corporate book, this is going to have to be on everybody's research self shelf. They're really going to love it. Uh, this week's book is... Walt Disney World, the first decade. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, know, you just don't know. There's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. So back in 1971, if you wanted to shop at the Contemporary Resort, you had a few choices, including the Contemporary Man and the Contemporary Woman, which both sold men's and women's fashions, of course, in different stores. There was the Plaza Gift and Sundries, which sold basic supplies. Kingdom Jewels Limited, where to get that expensive jewelry on your vacation. The Fantasia Shop, which sold, uh, sold gifts and children's clothing. And then there was the Spirit World. For ghosts, like no. the ghost whistle. It's been a long time since so we had that one. Nailed they it, sold um, uh, alcohol, liqueurs, wine, and other sundries like that. Oh, never mind. There was also the Captain's Chair, which was a men's barber shop. The American Beauty Shop, with a P.E. at the end, so sort of shoppy, which was a woman's salon. And there was the Bay and Beach, where you could buy film and souvenirs. Now we know you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. As you're traveling on the Disneyland Railroad at the Disneyland Resort, be sure to keep an eye out after your trip through the Grand Canyon Concourse. You know, once you travel back in time to the primeval world, you notice the dinosaurs are just pretty much going on about their day. They don't care about you on the train. They're just doing their dinosaur thing. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, this segment... I mean, the entire segment of the primeval world, mostly the last section of it with the Tyrannosaurus Rex fighting the Stegosaurus, is actually based off of the Rite of Spring segment of Fantasia. And you'll be so enthralled that you won't even notice the moment that most of these dinosaurs didn't live during the same time period together. That, my friends, is Disney magic. Bringing dinosaurs together of all kinds, even though they live millions of years apart. <laughs> We're saying since 1964. Since 1964. So, well, actually, no, it'd be earlier be since Fantasia. That's right, since Fantasia. Fantasia. Correct. Correct. Wow. Got that. Speaking of dinosaurs, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, where were Not a like, segue, well, guys. Yeah, we not a real segue. not plan this segue at all. Do we plan everything, anything ever, really? No. no Didn't think really. so. No. But it is time to announce this week's winner for the year of a million or so limited time cadets. And of course, you can still email us at commuterqueekly at gmail.com. Give us your name, 
your actual address, city and state included, please, because sometimes we don't get that, and I have to ask for it, <laughs> and your birthday month, and you'll automatically be entered to win fabulous prizes one a week for this entirety yes. of season four. So Very exciting. Very, yes. very exciting. We give away a lot of good prizes so far, guys. It's been yes, fun. But this week's prize is a Disneyland prize pack from Fairy Godmother Travel, and the winner is Pat R. from Meridian, Connecticut. Yay! Yay! Well, we nailed was, that one. I know. I was like, wow. I was like, perfect I was timing. To stop. I didn't know when to start. I was like, whoa. Boom. So That's never happening that. again. Yes. So we would like to hear from you, Pat. Let us know when you get the prize. Post a photo on the Facebooks or the Instagrams and let us know. Or, hey, periscope yourself opening the box. Yeah, that'd be pretty great, actually. We'd love to see that. that. We'd love to see you scope the box. Um, okay, so. We made it to the end of another episode of Communicore Weekly. Oh, thank, thank you, you guys so much for watching and listening to both of us. Yes, please, if you enjoy the show, leave us a comment on iTunes and a rating or on YouTube if you watch the video version, wherever we'd love to hear from you. Exactly. And email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the weekly contest to say sup, Corey, or just to send us a photo, random photo. We're fine with that. Yeah, that's cool, too. Okay with that. Of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. Yes, and make sure you can follow us or make sure you do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope, even though I know Periscope and Twitter are sort of combined. Doesn't hurt to say that. On all three of those platforms, I'm at Imaginerding. And he's at Jeff Heimbach. People seem to enjoy me washing me wash my dishes. Watch, people seem to enjoy me washing me? No, no, no. Enjoy, did I say that? I didn't mean yes. that. They enjoy watching me wash oh. my dishes is what I meant to say. That's on crazy. Periscope. That's absolutely crazy. It is crazy. You guys will watch it. And it's at least as entertaining. Anyway, also give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Yep. And you can visit our website, CommunicoreWeekly.com, and visit the Communa store, or just visit CommunicoreWeekly.Spreadshirt.com to get some awesome t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Heck, yes. And if you want your official cadet membership card or Communicore Weekly stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And don't forget, you can get your own custom written song by the Communicore Weekly Orchestra. Visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you can support us and get something cool in return as well. So for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>